The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given only by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding Questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. 
Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about the apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our first randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Did Judas Iscariot die by hanging? Or did he die by falling and bursting open? In this case, Mr. Ash's apparent contradiction arises from a failure to exercise proper exegesis, context, and discernment. Mr. Ash reads Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, which says, quote, Then he, referring to Judas Iscariot, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself, unquote. Mr. Ash then reads Acts chapter 1, verse 18, also referring to Judas Iscariot, which says, quote, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out, unquote. From these two verses, Mr. Ash then assumes that there is a contradiction in the Bible wherein Judas Iscariot is said to have died in two different manners. In the first, Matthew claims that Judas died from hanging. In the second, Mr. Ash believes that Luke, the writer of Acts, claims that Judas died from a fall causing him to burst open. However, as with so many other cases, what Mr. Ash fails to recognize is that the writer of the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts, write regarding the same historical events, but often they write about those events, emphasizing different aspects of those events. So in the case of Matthew, Matthew tells us that Judas took the 30 pieces of silver which he had received for betraying Jesus and threw them down in the temple. Judas then departed and went and hanged himself. This is rather a straightforward summarized chronology of what happened to Judas Iscariot and the cause of his death which was suicide by hanging. In the passage from Acts, we have two issues which need attention. Firstly, the translators have not given us the best interpretation of the text with context. The translation, given using the word quote-unquote purchased, leads us to believe that Judas went out personally at some point in time and used the 30 pieces of silver to buy a field. This then becomes another point of contention for Mr. Ash, who will challenge us to search diligently for any historical mention of such event. Since there is no such mention, Mr. Ash will once again claim a contradiction, namely, did Judas buy a field with the 30 pieces of silver, or did he throw it into the temple? The solution to understanding and solving this apparent contradiction lies in correctly parsing and or emphasis of the first part of the sentence. As stated, reading 
quote, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, unquote, makes it easy to come away believing that Judas personally carried out paying money and receiving a field for the money he had paid. However, it is possible to take the same sentence and emphasize different things which create a different idea. In this case, we need to put the emphasis on the part of the sentence which says, quote, with the wages of iniquity, unquote. In other words, quote, with the wages of Judas's iniquity, a field was purchased, unquote. Said another way, it wasn't Judas who personally purchased a field. Rather, it was the actions of Judas's iniquity which facilitated the purchase of the field. Now carry this thought over and reread the same sentence with this thought, and one can see that Although the sentence can be misunderstood, with proper emphasis, the sentence can still be correctly understood as it stands. The fact that we are on the right track is given in further passages from Matthew. In verse 6, we are told that after Judas threw down the 30 pieces of silver, the chief priests took them. The chief priests knew that the 30 pieces of silver were blood money, since they had been used to betray Jesus unto his death. As a result, the chief priests could neither keep the money personally, nor could they place the money back into the treasury. Verse 7 tells us that the chief priests decided after taking counsel to buy the potter's field in order to bury strangers. Thus, from one perspective, Luke is correct in reporting that Judas's actions, or Judas himself, was indirectly responsible for purchase of the field in question after Judas threw the money into the temple. Having proactively addressed this apparent contradiction, we now look at the original issue. In this case, Luke records that Judas fell headlong burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. According to Mr. Ash, falling headlong, bursting open in the middle, and having one's entrails gush out is a different cause of death from that of hanging. The only problem with Mr. Ash's observation is that Luke never states that falling headlong, bursting open in the middle, and having his entrails gush out was how Judas died. Obviously, it would have to be a historical event for Luke to record it, but just because Luke records it as a historical event does not automatically mean that Luke is claiming that this was Judas's cause of death. The fact is that the two are not necessarily contradictory. An ancient tradition states that Judas hanged himself above the valley of Hinnom on the edge of a cliff. Eventually, the rope snapped or was cut or untied, thus causing his body to fall headfirst into the field below, as Luke described. So Matthew can honestly be recording the method and cause of Judas's death, while Luke is honestly recording the circumstances before and after Judas's death. As we look at the totality of this historical event and place the respective statements of Matthew and Luke into context and to view, 
we see that as opposed to a contradiction alleged by Mr. Ash, we see consistent agreement. For our next question, Mr. Ash asks, Are we saved by faith or by works? In this case, Mr. Ash uses numerous passages which, due to improper exegesis, context, as well as his lack of spiritual discernment, he assumes that there is a contradiction. While there has been and continues to be a historical confusion on the part of man since Genesis 3, there has never been a confusion or contradiction on the part of God. In Mr. Ash's case, here are a few verses which he uses to arrive at his apparent contradiction. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Quote, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Unquote. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Quote, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Unquote. James chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Quote, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Finally, Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, which says, quote, And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments, unquote. From all of these and others, Mr. Ash concludes that Rather than the assertion in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, that, quote, God is not the author of confusion, unquote, the fact that many who are confused supports the fact that God is responsible as the author of the confusion that they may have. Mr. Ash then points out what some have proposed as a solution, saying, quote, the common defense here is that we are saved by faith and works. Mr. Ash then points out that Paul says that it is, quote, not of works, unquote. Frankly, here as in so many other cases, Mr. Ash suffers from a profound and continuing inability to grasp the truth because he suffers from spiritual blindness. Mr. Ash's situation bears little difference from that of the blind person trying to comprehend what the world around them looks like when they have never been able to see. Nevertheless, those of us restored to sight by God's grace and mercy will attempt to give sight to Mr. Ash, even though he at times seems to prefer darkness. Firstly, we see that prior to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, mankind et al., were declared by God as, quote, very good, unquote, despite having done absolutely nothing to deserve it. The fellowship with God and everything that Adam and Eve had, they held as a free gift given at creation by God. 
The only rule, the only commandment that God gave them was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As was pointed out in the two-part episode entitled, The Tree of Knowledge, the tree and its fruit were a representation of the law. This being said, if so, then essentially when God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit, the paraphrased theology is that God is saying, don't eat, don't consume the lie that you, i.e. mankind, have the ability to live, to be in fellowship with me, i.e. God, by virtue of your knowledge of the law. The moment you consume this fruit and attempt to live in fellowship with me, i.e. God, you will automatically, by default, cease to live by trust and faith in what I, i.e. God, have supplied you with completely at creation. Once Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they separated themselves from God and set themselves on and all mankind on a road wherein God would now reveal to them all of the knowledge of the law of good and evil that we sought. For the next several thousand years, as Paul states in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, quote, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, unquote. In other words, the burdens of the law were designed to demonstrate what the holiness of God looks like and how we are, if honest, unable to fulfill 100% of them 100% of the time. Once we realize that we cannot fulfill them, that we are incapable of God's righteousness on our own, we are drawn to the conclusion that we need God. Essentially, our conclusion is that Satan lied. We cannot be like God via our knowledge or our goodness, because apart from God, we have no goodness. All of this is clearly what all of the verses which emphasize faith are talking about. The confusion arises from the verse talking about works. The problem was that for the most part, because of the hardness of man's heart, the law, the commandments had not produced the result as yet as the schoolmaster to bring the Jewish people to the place where they could accept Jesus as the Messiah who would live, suffer, die, and be resurrected for their salvation. Instead, the Jews and others today are still caught up in the idea that they can obtain heaven or salvation by keeping the law, the commandments, either 100% or marginally better than others whom we view as being ungodly or at least not as good as we are. Paul gives us the revelation and reality that from God's perspective, all mankind, we, they, quote, all are gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Unquote. This is the truth that Jesus, God in the flesh himself, provides in the very example cited by Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. 
Here, Jesus asks a rhetorical question of the Pharisees, who was questioning Jesus, calling Jesus, quote, good master, unquote, and asking what, quote, good, unquote, should he do in order to enter heaven. Notice that Jesus quickly and aptly demonstrates two things. Firstly, from a complete biblical perspective, Jesus reminds all of the truth that Paul would later clarify that there is none good but God. So in this instance, the Pharisee either needed to drop the use of the word quote-unquote good if in fact Jesus is only a man, or the Pharisee more rightly needed to realize that Jesus was God, which is the only way he could be considered good in a fully theological sense. Second, the Pharisee is still laboring under the misnomer that he or anyone else can be good enough to please God or to enter heaven by merits or works. The Pharisee was already an expert on the law and the commandments. The Pharisee's, quote, knowledge of good and evil, unquote, was not in any way lacking. The Pharisees were all experts on the law and the commandments. What the Pharisees were thayers at was allowing the law to be their schoolmaster to bring them to repentance in dead works and to the knowledge of righteousness by faith. Jesus instinctively discerns this and attempts to reapply a summarized lesson for the benefit of the Pharisee and ours. Since the Pharisee had not paid spiritual attention, Jesus challenges the Pharisee to, quote, keep the commandments, unquote, in order to obtain eternal life. Here, Mr. Ash and others misunderstand and believe that Jesus is advocating the keeping of works and merits to this Pharisee, and by extension us, as a viable way to obtain eternal life. However, the truth is that if the Pharisee and everyone else hearing Jesus or measuring themselves against the law were honest, he and we would conclude that we have all fallen short. Instead, Mr. Ash and others seem to just accept that the Pharisee has, as a factual matter, kept 100% of the law, 100% of the time, from the time of his birth until he was now speaking with Jesus. But the reality was that the Pharisee had not. The Pharisee was prideful, and the problem was his heart. The Pharisee was caught up in the cares and beliefs of this world. If we revisit this encounter, as well as the larger issue at hand, we see via the Spirit of God's discernment several things. 1. Jesus was and is more than simply a, quote, good teacher. Jesus is fully God and fully man. 2. Jesus being fully God and fully man was and is the only one who was able to fully and completely keep 100% of the law, all commandments, all righteousness, 100% of the time. 3. Man, any man, every man, every human who ever existed, save Jesus, was, is, 
and will be incapable of ever keeping 100% of the entire law 100% of the time. All of these historical realities bring us to the point where we must confess that we need a Savior. Enter Jesus the Messiah, God with us. Since we cannot meet God, God meets whom he chooses. Those whom God chooses, God draws to repentance and to confession of our need for his help. God then provides all efficient and sufficient help for his chosen through his completed work of his son, Jesus. In this case, as stated, Jesus lived and completed all righteousness needed to fully satisfy God the Father. Since the penalty of man's sin is death, separation from God, Jesus voluntarily accepted the penalty of which we are all due and died in order to pay that debt for all time. As a result, those whom God has chosen who have placed their faith in Jesus' finished work have Jesus' righteousness, God's righteousness, imputed freely to our account. We are then fully justified in God's sight by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. While Jesus' life, crucifixion, and death justify us, the power of his resurrection, ascension, and intercession with God the Father provide us through the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit to be endowed with a new nature born from above. This new nature, maintained by faith, brings the process of sanctification, new life. God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us then by its nature convicts, provokes, and encourages each believer to bear fruit in the form of having the mind of Christ which dwells inside us. These fruits take on many forms as God's Spirit works through submitted believers to minister to the needs of the body of Christ and to spread the gospel. In many cases, if not most, when we look at these fruits, we can correctly refer to these fruits as works. Historically speaking, the early Christian church was in fact the early flower born from the bud of Judaism. In many cases, Christians were simply Jews who had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of the entire law on their behalf. This being said, the Jews had spent their entire lives and had a culture based entirely on salvation being a product of each person's adherence to the Mosaic law. Hence, works equaled salvation to the Orthodox Jew. Thus, Jewish believers had difficulty deprogramming and divorcing themselves from placing an incorrect definition and understanding of how works were to be interpreted in the context with the entirety of God's Word and of salvation in the New Testament covenant. This misunderstanding has continued to the present in many cases. To put it simply, God's revelation makes it clear that God has always been looking for fellowship for a relationship with his creation based upon trust and faith in him as the creator, provider, and sustainer of all things. But we should never imagine that faith and trust in question is solely a mental exercise alone. True faith, biblical faith, is well expressed as the ABCs of faith. That is, biblical faith in context is an action based upon a belief supported by confidence. Some would call the action works. 
However, the actions are a result of the belief and confidence, which is faith. It is the faith in Christ's finished work which justifies us in God's sight, and not the works which we do. The works, actions, are the evidence or fruit of a believer being a new creation or being born from above as well as having God's Holy Spirit abiding in us. But the works or actions are not the basis of being justified or having a relationship with God. A saving faith in Jesus Christ, if genuine, will always be accompanied by works since that is God's nature to work in and through those whom he is pleased to save. So there is no contradiction in God's word regarding this matter. A believer can give glory and praise to God for the works which God's Spirit does in and through the believer as evidence of the abiding relationship with Jesus that they hold by faith. At the same time, as Paul states in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, quote, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Unquote. Finally, Mr. Ash asks, When was Jesus crucified? Was it the third hour or the sixth? In this case, Mr. Ash's apparent contradiction comes as a result of reading Mark chapter 15, verse 25, which says, quote, And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this to John chapter 19, verse 14 and 15, which says, quote, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar, unquote. Here, Mr. Ash's confusion arises from his failure to exercise proper cultural context, history, and discernment. What Mr. Ash and others often fail to observe is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote from different perspectives to different audiences, emphasizing different aspects of the life, ministry, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Generally speaking, for example... Matthew wrote his gospel for a Hebrew or Jewish audience. Mark and Luke wrote to a Gentile or Greek audience. And John wrote to Christians. In terms of the issue of telling time during Jesus' day, there were no gear-driven clocks such as we have today. The Romans used either water clocks or sundials to tell time. Both the Roman and Jewish day were divided into two 12-hour periods. In both cases, the Jewish and Roman day was variable due to the length of the season during which it was being measured. Additionally, despite the fact that one of Mr. Ash's websites states that, quote, it is an ad hoc defense to claim that there were two methods of reckoning time here, it has never been shown that this is the case, unquote. A simple research demonstrates that, in fact, there were historical differences between how Hebrew Jews reckoned the beginning of the day and how Romans reckoned the beginning of the day. In the case of the Jews, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, which says, quote, So the evening and the morning were the first day, unquote, makes it clear that 
from the creation the Hebraic hours began at sunset. A Hebraic day consists of 12 night hours and 12 day hours. A Hebraic night hour is defined as one twelfth of the time between sunset and sunrise. A Hebraic day hour is one twelfth of the time between sunrise and sunset. As stated earlier, because of the varying season length, a Hebraic day hour can be between 42 to 72 minutes depending on the seasons. In contrast, the Roman day began at midnight, i.e. 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. noon and from 12 p.m. noon to 12 a.m. midnight. So as we look at Mark and John's accounts of the crucifixion, it is possible to reconcile the two accounts by understanding that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used the Hebrew-Jewish method of timekeeping, whereas John used the Roman method of timekeeping. So according to Jewish timekeeping, the third hour would be 9 a.m., the sixth hour would be 12 o'clock noon, and the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock p.m. According to Roman timekeeping, the third hour would be 3 o'clock a.m., the sixth hour would be 6 o'clock a.m., the ninth hour would be 9 o'clock a.m., and the twelfth hour would be 12 o'clock noon. Thus, for example, the Hebrew Jews could say that Jesus was crucified on the third hour, i.e. 9 o'clock a.m., while the Romans could say that Jesus was crucified on the ninth hour, which would also be 9 o'clock a.m. Insofar as the quotation by John above is concerned, we must notice two things. One, John uses the Greek word Jose in verse 14, which is translated, quote, about or nearly, unquote. So we must keep in mind that John is admitting here to an approximation of time. 2. John's approximation of the Roman 6th hour, i.e. 6 o'clock a.m., is not about the actual crucifixion, i.e. the placement of Jesus upon the cross. Instead, according to the text, what happened at about 6 o'clock a.m. was a confrontation between Pilate, the Jews, and others wherein the Jews wanted Jesus to be crucified, and Pilate, who was still procrastinating. Thus, Jesus was not yet at the site of the crucifixion, much less on the cross being crucified. Given the known historical accounts of the events surrounding Jesus' trial and crucifixion, when we take into account all of the various issues regarding differences in timekeeping, as well as the attention to detail of exactly what is happening at the times given, we see once again that as opposed to contradiction, we see harmonious accounts given by honest men about historical events. So once again, to date, in this series, we have examined and answered nine questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like, who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. 
These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to believe by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these nine and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely if not exclusively due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in